Good morning, everybody. So good to see you out there in virtual virtual world. Hey, why don't we do this for a second? Turn on your camera, say hello, maybe give us a wave. Love to see your face just for a second. You don't have to keep it on the whole time. It's so good to be together. What's up? Hopefully you're like not in the washroom or something, you know, something awkward like that. Oh, some of you are outside, which is wonderful. I know it's so, so, such a beautiful day. And so, hello, hello. Good to see you all. Welcome. And we're just excited for uh, this morning and our time together. Hi. Um, yeah, just so thankful for our team. Thank you guys for kind of, get, kind of getting us going this morning. Very appreciative of all your work. And I just know uh, these guys and gal, their heart for our community is just so beautiful and seeing it flourish. And uh, thank you, Heidi, as well, just for uh, leading us in that. Um, I just, I really appreciate that as we lament and take time uh, to, to reflect um, so well said and well prayed. Thank you. Um, man, it's been a couple of weeks. It's been a couple of weeks of just kind of getting back. A couple of weeks ago, it was uh, Pentecost Sunday, and we had some time to connect with each other. And we started actually, it's been a weird season, let's be honest. We started a series kind of off the cuff, we did, um, on the Holy Spirit. And because of Pentecost Sunday, there's been a ton of questions over the last couple of years around spiritual gifts. And so we thought we'd take a minute and, and tackle that a couple of weeks ago. And I've just felt like there's more questions around the Holy Spirit, what we see in the scriptures, that we take some time and take a couple other weeks to talk about some of the things the Spirit does. A lot, if you didn't engage with us a couple of weeks ago, you may be surprised that the word spiritual gift is not really used in the New Testament at all. Actually, I think the only time the word spiritual and gift together are used is when Paul talks about himself kind of as a spiritual gift to the church. Um, a lot of us read 1 Corinthians and we hear in there the term in English spiritual gift, but not to get all nerdy on you, the Greek word is pneumatikos, pneumatikos. And really the best translation of that, a lot of scholars and different pastors kind of translate that as either like the stuff the Spirit does or things the Spirit does. And so we've been kind of calling this little mini series Spirit Stuff because that's actually the picture you get in the New Testament is not um, as much spiritual gifts, I know we like to use that word, but more things that the Spirit does. And actually kind of capturing that in our imagination, in our hearts, this idea of things the Spirit does really actually changes and alters the course of how we think about these things. Because I don't know if you need therapy like I do, I have been at uh, times in an environment where people have claimed certain types of gifts. And uh, it's interesting because actually the vision that the New Testament gives is that the things the Spirit does is really open to everybody. Actually, in the lists in 1 Corinthians and Romans, they're not exhaustive lists, right? They're just, I don't think they're, I think there's actually more to it. I don't think they're like exhaustive lists that Paul is giving. He's just simply saying to the community that there are things that the Spirit does and be open and ready to those things. And so this absolutely obliterates uh, even something like people who would claim, because this is popular in Western culture, people who would claim they have the gift of healing right? There's a lot of people that would brand themselves as uh, kind of having this gift and building ministries on it. And though I think there, are, there could be some people that are attuned to being used in that gift, uh, what Paul is actually saying is be open to all the gifts. It's not like you do a spiritual gifts test and you pick one. Pneumaticos, the idea of this word is that we actually are just, our lives are open and postured to the different gifts being used in and through us. And I actually don't think that's one. 
I think you could come this morning, I know we're virtually, but as we gather as the church, you could come and be used in all sorts of gifts. And I actually think this is what the heart of what Paul is saying. With all that said, I don't want to reteach and kind of preach what we talked about a couple weeks ago, but I actually think it's important to shape our minds around the fact that really spiritual gifts, those words in English aren't really ever together in the Greek language. We kind of need to rethink. And I actually think, actually, it's a beautiful thing for the church because some of us have looked at maybe some of the abuses around certain people claiming certain things. And what we want to do here, as we've been saying, is just create a community where we're just all open to the gifts of the Spirit and uh, to what the Spirit wants to do within us and uh, just having an open posture to some of those things. And I do think you can cultivate certain gifts or certain things the Spirit wants to do, um, but I also think we need to be open just to what God wants to do with us when we gather together, and that can look different in different places, and it doesn't just have to be one thing we pick off a list, okay? So with that said, and, I mean, there's so much we could say about spiritual gifts, but you know, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's so, it, this is fascinating to me. Because if I were to ask you what Jesus came to do, so if we had coffee or I, you know, we were together in the same room and I just said, hey, somebody shout out, what, if you read the Gospels, what did Jesus come to do? How would you respond? What did Jesus come to do? You know, for a lot of us, I would think because we use this language a lot around here, and it's appropriate language, a lot of us would say that Jesus came to set up his kingdom, which is, there's many truths to that. That's absolutely true. Others of us would say that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, or, you know, kind of the classic kind of response to this is often that Jesus came and his ultimate goal was to make a way to God for humanity. And again, while all those things are true, you know what's fascinating? In each and every single gospel, all four, and when something happens in all four gospels, I, I think you know, the scriptures are inspired and we need to listen to everything and attune our lives to everything. But I've always said, if something shows up in all four gospels, I think God is trying to get us to see something. And what's fascinating is that in every single gospel, this guy named John the Baptist shows up before Jesus gets on the scene. And he says, he proclaims that one is coming and we know now that this is Jesus the Messiah. And here's what he would do. And we don't talk about this ever. We rarely ever talk about this. All four gospels speak of Jesus coming and that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All four gospels. Jesus' mission here, it's right before us, and we often just kind of push it to the side, is that he would baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Now, all sorts of questions with this but I think we need to actually look at it, right? Um, obviously the question is, what, what does that even mean? You know, in a context a couple of millennia later, just thinking through what does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Uh, I know there's all sorts of questions around this, but I do think we actually need to, to look at it. Some of us are passionate about justice. Some of us believe that Jesus is calling us to the mission of God in our world. Obviously, we, most of us believe that. Uh, that. We take very seriously the idea of loving our neighbor as ourselves and, and being love and light in the world as God has called us to as Jesus followers. All that is good. But when something comes up in every gospel, maybe we should look at it. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a few minutes, and I was thinking today, well, this week, even in just preparing, this is going to get a little teachy, okay? There's going to be moments here as we talk about the, not only just the biblical, but the historical unfolding of how people have interpreted the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's going to get a little teachy at times, but my hope is you can just hang with me for a couple minutes because I think there's a lot of applicable things for us here. 
Cool? Sound good? I know you're out there in virtual world. Please hang with me. But I think actually, as I hopefully, hopefully distill some of this down, not only will we see how people have approached this, but how we could kind of come around this idea as a community, because I'm just going to beat this drum all day. Four times in the New Testament, John says, Jesus has come to baptize us, baptize his disciples with the Holy Spirit. I think we should like attune our ear to what this could mean for us. So here's what I want to do. I want to start by talking about three particular viewpoints regarding uh, when someone is baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there's, I would say there, like in the last 150 years or so, there's three particular places in which communities have come to this idea about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? So the first one is kind of your classic Protestant kind of evangelical position on the baptism of the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit. And for that community, for most evangelicals, being baptized with the Holy Spirit ultimately happens at conversion. In other words, uh, the Protestant idea for many, many years has been that when somebody repents and gives their faith and allegiance to Jesus and turns to Jesus and puts their trust in him, that simultaneously when that happens in that turning towards Jesus as king, that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. It actually, the idea for most Protestants is it happens in one stage. You have conversion, and then you're filled with God's Spirit. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I would imagine most people around the horn here today with us logged in, um, if you grew up in the church, that's probably the position that mo I would say most churches come from, and that's, that's fantastic. So that kind of classic, kind of Protestant, evangelical position. That's the first one. But in the last 120 years or so, last 130 years, there's been kind of a move, well, not kind of, it's a vast movement, even a movement that we're kind of rooted in as far as our church, that has interpreted at times this differently than a simple uh, conversion and being filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit at the same time. And this is the Pentecostal movement. For most Neo-Pentecostals, being baptized with the Holy Spirit is what they would view as a second work of grace in the life of somebody who's already a Christian. And that just simply means that for most Pentecostals, they have come to believe that somebody kind of turns their life to Jesus, repents uh, through repentance and giving their allegiance to Jesus. And then it's like, it's almost like it's two stages. There's a second work of grace that happens in the life of a follower of Jesus, and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, this historically has its roots in a guy named John Wesley. So uh, the Wesleyan kind of holiness movement, um, Wesley taught that there was actually a second blessing, that there was this second work of grace that was subsequent to salvation where sanctification could take place in the life of a believer. And that's just big words to say that there's a second work of grace where followers of Jesus become more like him and they are immersed or baptized in the Holy Spirit. What has happened is Neo-Pentecostals kind of took Wesley's idea and really kind of latched on to this idea that it seems like, and we're going to look at some of the text today, we're going to bounce around, that it's true. It seems like even in the book of Acts, there are moments and times and places and spaces where you see these Christians and then the apostles will ask, hey, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they'll say, no, we follow Jesus, but we haven't. And so a whole movement has kind of been birthed out of this 
in which it views a second work of grace. Here's one Pentecostal scholar, his name is Roger Stronstad, whom I love, by the way, and have really enjoyed his work. I don't agree with everything, but this is what he says. He says this, in Luke Acts, it's the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, all who receive the Holy Spirit, he says, have first gained the essential spiritual prerequisite, namely that they are already saved. He goes on and says this, simply put, repentance or forgiveness is the essential spiritual prerequisite for being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he says this, in other words, being baptized in the Holy Spirit in Luke Acts cannot be soteriological or mean salvation. That's just a big word, salvation, a soteriological experience. He goes on, rather, he says, it is that charismatic experience that the disciples, rece- that the disciples received on the day of Pentecost. And so clearly here, got some stuff popping up on my computer, so I want to make sure you're with me. Okay, we're good. Clearly here, um, this is a Pentecostal scholar saying, listen, when you read Luke and Acts, you have Christians who have, it seems, have this second work of grace. And the Bible, the Bible that we read about love and justice and all the other things we're passionate about, the mission of God, that same Bible talks about this kind of subsequent, this second work where somebody's baptized in the Holy Spirit. So that's the Pentecostal position. Now, there's another layer to the Pentecostal position. And grab your popcorn, let's get ready, here we go, okay? Um, some of you are like, this is, my, this is my life, I grew up in this. Other, others of you are gonna be like, what? The Pentecostal position has also not only held that there's a second work of grace, but that the evidence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is something called glossolalia, glossolalia, which is what we read in our Bibles as speaking in tongues. And the Pentecostal position has very much been predicated on this idea that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, one, is a second work of grace, and that evidence of that is speaking in unknown languages or other tongues as is seen at the day of Pentecost. Again, Roger Stronstad, I think he's being very overambitious here. I love him, but I think he's being very overambitious. But here's a Pentecostal scholar and just the idea that has been cultivated with this. He says this, the sign of being baptized with the Spirit is speaking with other tongues. Thus, where speaking, and this is a far reach for me, but he says thus, where speaking with other tongues is reported, even when, uh, even where baptized in the Holy Spirit terminology is not used, as in the report of Ephesus in Acts 19, it signifies that a baptism with the, baptizing with the Spirit has taken place. Basically what Roger Stronstad is saying is that anytime you look in the scriptures, when somebody's baptized, this term baptized with the Spirit, like John used before, as Jesus was getting on the scene, that people speak in tongues, and when they don't, Roger Stronstad would say, it just needs to be assumed, all right? So position one, kind of your classic Protestant, I hope you're just having fun, as much fun as I am. I was just all geeked up just to talk about this stuff. Some of you are like, this is crazy. Um, hang with us. So the classic Protestant position of you're filled or baptized with the Spirit at conversion, the Pentecostal movement, which has exploded over the last 130 years, has kind of seen it as a subsequent event or sub- subsequent grace, and evidence of that is um, being uh, speaking in tongues, all right? So then there's probably this third group I would call them called charismatics that have emerged over the last 100 years or so. Now, it's an interesting group because I would say some charismatics hold to an evangelical kind of Protestant position 
where you're filled with the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit at conversion, while there would be others that would hold to more of the Pentecostal view that a second work of grace happens in a believer's life, um, that, and that is spirit baptism. And, you know, obviously, charismatics affirm speaking in tongues. They typically affirm speaking in tongues. They typically do not consider charismatics. They do not consider it any sort of initial evidence of spirit baptism like Pentecostals do. Instead, and this is making generalizations, but instead, most charismatics would affirm kind of a what I would call a continual work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer and in the life of the church. And that this would be evidenced by all sorts of things charismatics typically believe. Things like spiritual gifts and healing and signs and wonders. And they would ultimately say tongues being part of that. Okay, so you have three kind of, I would say, three positions the last couple, you know, 150 years or whatever. The classic Protestant position, the more neo-Pentecostal position that's emerged, and then you have more of a charismatic position that seems to view the filling of the Spirit as this kind of this, this ongoing work. Now, if you're with me, you're hanging with me, what I want to do is I just want to look, because I actually think we can do this. I want to open up the scriptures for just a couple minutes, and we'll go pretty quick here, so don't, don't worry. I know we're online together. I want to look at the different instances in the book of Acts where the, the language and the story and the narrative shows us people are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, some will disagree that, some will say Acts is more narrative. We can't really build a theology off Acts. What we need to do is really build our theology off Paul and the letters and the writings. It's harder to build a theology off narrative. Um, I think I disagree with that. I actually think I disagree with that. I think it's here. The story of Jesus, obviously, and then the story of the church in Acts is here for a reason. And so what I want to do, there's five different places in the book of Acts where people were baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. I just want to, some of them will read quick. Others of them, I'll just tell you the story. And I just want to show you the response of the people within that framework and within the story itself, and then look at how these different positions that we've talked about often respond to this, okay? I know you're out there. I know you're hanging with me. I, I, I can imagine some of you are just like, let's, let's do this, okay? Um, especially that some of you that grew up in the Pentecostal, like the classic Pentecostal church, you're like, let's go. Well, as my boys would say, let's go. Okay, so first one is in Acts 2. If you want to open up your Bible, maybe some of these stories you have to read afterwards as well because I'll just tell some of them. Acts 2 is uh, obviously the day of Pentecost where uh, the disciples are meeting in an upper room. Jesus has promised that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And it comes in, I guess if you're, not, uh, if you're not fluent in the Hebrew story, it would kind of seem kind of weird. A couple thousand years later to us, for most rational people, it kind of seems weird. Tongues of fire, speaking in tongues, all this thing kind of happening. It's there in the Bible. It's happening in this upper room. And so here's what happens. Here's how uh, the groups, the different kind of groups kind of approach this. Pentecostals, for the most part, would say this. Look, here we go. In the upper room, these people in the upper room, they would say, had already been followers of Jesus and they had been following Jesus for a while and now they had been filled with the Holy Spirit and evidence of that was speaking in tongues. So most Pentecostals will look at the day of Pentecost and go, see, these people were already Christians. Then they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and evidence of that is speaking in tongues. 
Protestants and more kind of broad evangelicals will look at the same story and say this. They'll say Pentecost is an amazing one-time non-repeated event where the Holy Spirit was given to the church. And they'll look back on that and celebrate what God did. And then most what happens is most Protestants will say, now we are baptized in the spirit as believers when we come to faith in Jesus. And so the kind of the, the picture that most Protestants would say or evangelicals would say, listen, that happened. Yes, it happened in the book of Acts, but it's not something we have to like reduplicate over and over. When I come to faith in Jesus, I'm filled with God's spirit and he baptizes me. Charismatics would say of the same, same kind of event in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit was given to the church and they would say, now we can experience the gifts of the spirit including the things we see in the upper room, which were tongues and prophecy. One event, people will look at it differently. So that's the day of Pentecost. You flip then just a few chapters over to Acts chapter eight. And we get another picture in Acts chapter eight of people being baptized in the Holy Spirit. In this particular passage, in this particular story, there's a guy named Philip who goes to Samaria and takes the gospel to Samaria. And this guy named Simon the Sorcerer, and I got thinking, that's like a terrible like label on you, Simon the Sorcerer. Can you imagine that on like, you know, your Plenty of Fish bio or whatever? Hi, I'm Simon the Sorcerer. Like this is like attached to you in the Bible forever. So this guy named Simon the Sorcerer is following Jesus. He kind of turns his life and gives his life to Jesus. And as the story unfolds, if you want to read it with me, Acts chapter eight, verse 14, it says this, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, which was like unthinkable to the Jewish people at the time. They sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for these new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them and they simply had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so what do you think Pentecostals? They look at this and they go, whoa, these new believers in Samaria were following Jesus, but they had not yet been baptized or had not yet received the Holy Spirit. They would say, look, two stages here. Philip went, people started to become saved. Uh, Peter and John had to go and then they laid hands on them. And so it was like this kind of second work of grace. And so you kind of see why a lot of times Pentecostals look at this as kind of a two-stage thing. Now, there are other Protestants, though, that would say this. Here, here's a, a quote from a, a wonderful scholar. His name is James Dunn, and here's what Jimmy says. He says this, the Samaritans in this story never really believed at all. Their attention was fixed on Philip, who was coming to them, not on Christ, and Simon, the sorcerer, though baptized and said to be believing, was clearly not a Christian. So James Dunn says, listen, uh, the, though... Uh, they received the Holy Spirit here. They weren't Christians before the apostles kind of getting to them. Another scholar said, takes a totally different approach. Michael Green, wonderful guy. He says this. He says, in the story here, God withheld his spirit on this unique occasion because of the, sp because of the split between Jews and Samaritans. So Michael Green says there was hostility between Jews and Samaritans. There was deep hostility where the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. If the Holy Spirit was immediately given to the Samaritans on profession of faith and baptism, the division would have continued and there would have been two churches out of fellowship with one another. And so Michael Green argues here that the reason why you kind of see the two steps is because 
there was so much division between Jew and Gentile. It took the apostles, Peter and John actually going there to, to pray for them. They received the Holy Spirit. Instead of, and then instead of fractions in the church, where you have a Samaritan church and a Jewish church or whatever, that it, the church would be unified, that there was like actually practical things going on here. Listen, I know you're dazzled, but there's the first two of five that where the Holy Spirit baptizes people. Then you flip one chapter over, one chapter over to Acts chapter nine. And if you know, if you know the Bible pretty well, Acts chapter nine is this guy named Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, who wrote large portions of letters in the New Testament. It's his conversion. Paul basically is riding on a horse, gets knocked off. Uh, God basically blinds him, comes to him, knocks him off his horse, uh, speaks to him. And we know that there's this kind of conversion process in Paul's life, but he's blinded, I think, for three days. And so this guy named Ananias has to come to him. If you pick it up in verse 17, this is what the story says. It says this, Then Ananias went to the house, and he entered it, and he placed his hands on Saul, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales from uh, Saul's eyes fell off and he could see again and he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And so brothers and sisters, what do Pentecostals say? They say, dude, Paul fell off the horse. He had this experience with God. And then it wasn't until three days later when Ananias comes and places his hands on him. That's when he receives the Holy Spirit. I mean, for Pentecostals, they would say, like, this is clear. These two kind of stage uh, events, somebody's a Christian and then they're filled or baptized with the Spirit. But evangelicals, most evangelicals will, will say that um, it did all, it, that this situation actually all happened at once. And most uh, Protestants would point to Paul in his writings and say, listen, Paul was a one-stage man. Anywhere you read after the book of Acts, when Paul is talking about the work of the Spirit, he talks about it as really something that comes with conversion, that we're baptized or filled with the Spirit at conversion. And so uh, Protestants would kind of push back on the Pentecostal idea that this, uh, who, you know, the narrative of Acts is what it is, but really what Paul believes is that the believer is filled with the Spirit or baptized the Spirit at conversion. Couple more, okay? Hang with me, please. Acts chapter 10. So you flip a couple chapters over. And you get a, a story of a guy named Peter and a guy named Cornelius, uh, each having dreams or, or visions from God. And basically, Peter gets this vision to kill and eat. And this is so weird because he's Jewish and you don't eat anything unclean. And he goes to the house of a Gentile. His name is Cornelius, who's like a Roman soldier type. And they both have these dreams are visions from God. And it says this in verse 44 of Acts chapter 10, when Peter was still speaking these words, he, so he went to Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised or Jewish believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on these Gentile people for they heard them, and here it is, speaking in tongues and praising God. And so, I mean, this is unraveling. The Holy Spirit is given to these Gentile people. And for Jewish people, they're just trying to wrap their minds around this. And so Pentecostals would say, here we go, everybody. Cornelius, 
in the story, we read him as a God-fearer. And then he has this vision, he turns to God, and then after Peter comes, he's filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Pentecostal would say he was a Christian, Peter showed up, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And again, this kind of way of saying, look, this is there, there it is. But a lot of people would say on the kind of the Protestant evangelical side that just because Cornelius was called a God-fearer didn't mean that Cornelius knew that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was a Christian or Jesus follower. And there's precedent for this, right? The word God-fearer is used in our Bibles about uh, different people. I think of Lydia. It talks about Lydia as being a God-fearer. What's interesting is it often uses this word God-fearer before... um, people even encounter Jesus. And that word has layers to it, but one of, the, one of the layers is that Cornelius, most Protestants would say like, listen, Cornelius just had an openness to the God of Israel. So obviously as Jews lived out kind of their way of living, guided by the law and the prophets, um, people would hear about it. And so Cornelius was somebody who was open to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but they would say, listen, he wasn't a Christian until Peter showed up after this dream. And so it was kind of this one stage thing. He prays, the people there are filled with the spirit. And this is the picture that you get. I know you're dazzled. You're, you're razzled and dazzled. You're just so excited wherever you're sitting. Some of you sitting outside, the beautiful, the, the heat is just pouring down on you. You're so excited to be here. One more, and then I promise there's payoff, Okay. One more is Acts chapter 19. And the story we get in Acts 19 is that Paul is in Ephesus and he comes and he visits some people in Ephesus and it says that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, that they, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, comes on them. And so what happens is, again, is that Pentecostals would say, these people in Ephesus had repented and they were believers. This is kind of the language you kind of see and feel in Ephesus. And the, the, the thought is, is that they even had Apollos in Ephesus who taught them about Jesus. And yet Paul comes up and shows up to them and says, hey, have you received the Holy Spirit? Or have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they say, no. Well, you know, we don't, we don't even really know what that means. And then they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so Pentecostals would say, yo, here it is again. They're Christians and then they have this second work of grace. There would be many Protestants that would kind of push back on that. Michael Green says this. He says, the opposite actually. He says, the passage goes on to make it crystal clear that these disciples in Ephesus, when Paul shows up, were in no sense Christians. He said they were followers of John the Baptist and baptized by him, who then made their way hundreds of miles northwest to Ephesus and they had, not cl- they, had, they had clearly not been in touch with John's later testimony to Jesus. So basically, Michael Green is arguing these were disciples of John, not disciples of Jesus, for they needed to be informed by Paul of the coming one, of Jesus, the Messiah, whom John predicted was in fact Jesus. They had n- neither heard of Jesus, nor believed in Jesus, nor been baptized into the name of Jesus, and they were quite uninformed about the Holy Spirit. And so... Michael Green here, so Pentecostals, listen, these people were believers, Paul comes, lays his hands, they're baptized in the spirit. Michael Green and others would say, these were, ba- these were disciples of John, and so they, when Paul came, heard the story of Jesus, they responded, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. You picking up what I'm putting down? There's not division here, there's just different ways in which classic Protestants 
neo-Pentecostals and charismatics kind of come to these texts. So I know you're just burning. You're on the edge of your seat just thinking, so Drew, what do you think, right? Because I know you really care. Well, here, here's what I think. Um, one, I want us all to have, uh, well, as we teach about the Holy Spirit and the pneumaticos and the gifts of the Spirit, I just want us all to have a posture that's open to the Holy Spirit, one, before I, I, we even get into this. Um, I, I'm thankful for the Jesus-centered movement. I said this last time. I'm thankful for things that are popping up, like the Jesus Collective and the gospel kind of collective movements. Um, I'm thankful for them. But I just want to remind us that you can be gener- uh, Jesus-centered, but if we're not Holy Spirit-centered, Jesus is not here without his Spirit, And so all of us need to understand and be open to the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not, please hear me, this is not a denominational thing. I'm not, I don't have any denomination or anything like that over me forcing me to say this. I believe as a follower of Jesus that the only way to know him is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not here in flesh and blood. He's not like, we can't all pilgrimage to like St. Louis or something to find Jesus in flesh and blood. He's here by his spirit. And so the importance of being open to the Holy Spirit, and this is why we use the word charismatic in the best sense. It's because we can only know Jesus with the Holy Spirit revealing and and bringing that into our lives. I think from all the things that we've read here, so so the question could be, um, is it a two-stage thing or does it happen all at the same time? You know, you know kind of where I personally stand on this? You know what my answer is? Yes. Yes. I don't know. It seems here, and I, I'm with Michael Green. He says sometimes reception of the Spirit follows baptism. So sometimes somebody's baptized and then they're baptized in the Spirit. Sometimes it precedes baptism, like in Acts 10 with Cornelius. And sometimes a dude like Paul is baptized who has had no part nor lot in the Christian thing at all and whose heart is still fast bound in wickedness. As we look at these different examples, it kind of just happens as it does. And my main, my main, I think, instruction for our community is that we would just be filled with the Holy Spirit. I know I just took a bunch of minutes to talk about the nuances of when this seemed to happen in scripture. I, I'm more of, yeah, let's be open to this. And let's receive the Spirit. And so I will, at times, grate people who are very rational the wrong way because I do think the baptism of the Spirit is a thing. And I even think tongues is a thing. It's in the Bible, it's in the scriptures, and it's, it's a thing. We'll talk more about it uh, later, probably next week, talk more about it. But then, at, and that's not a denominational thing, and I don't think I'm weird. I've, you know, I think I'm a pretty normal dude, but I, I'm very open to that. I'll say that, again, this idea of the baptism of the Spirit and even tongues is a thing, but I will also grate my Pentecostal friends and say it's not the main thing. It just isn't. What I want to lead our community and where we want to head is being uh, uh, filled with the Spirit, being people that are open to the Holy Spirit. And I do think there's dangers in each position. For the evangelical Protestant kind of position, I think the danger is, is that following Jesus has been, become Christocentric. And now, most of our churches, because of the, some of the weird stuff we see in the Bible, don't talk about the Holy Spirit or the emphasis of walking in the Spirit at all. And because some 
Pentecostals and Charismatics have kind of approached this in weird ways over the years. A lot of churches, and you can nod your head with me because many of you have probably grown up in this kind of environment, don't talk about this stuff at all. It is Father, Son, and Holy Bible, right? This is kind of the environment we've created. Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And it's like that spirit stuff, it may just get a little weird. And can I just... The, the, the stage has been set because there are some weird things. I mean, we do believe in a virgin birth and in a, a, a death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So I'm not advocating for making everything rational or just like that there's no supernatural element to this. I think that's partly though what the Protestant church has done, has made everything kind of like we just don't, that's kind of weird and out there and don't even talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it leads us to worship the Bible. And we're big on the Bible here. We just read like, we're big on that, but it leads people to focus more on the Bible and, uh, and totally shut off at times the work of the Spirit. The danger for my Pentecostal friends, and I, I know uh, not as much in our church, but I know some of y'all are out there. What happens is when, when there's such a focus, one, on a two-stage kind of event, and when there's so much focus on speaking in tongues, it leads to elitism. I have heard people say that to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, you've just got to go and get it. Get, get it. Go and get it. Like what? I honestly do not even know what that means. I think there has been great dangers in the Pentecostal movement of people saying, you want to be baptized in the Spirit, go, just go and get it. Go and do a closet somewhere and get it. As though we're treating the Spirit or God like some sort of slot machine. There are dangers. And I don't know about you, with the Pentecostal movement, I ha we have to wrestle through. What do we do when people who do not speak in tongues have more evidence of the Spirit's work in their lives than people that do? Just mic drop, right? Drop the mic on that one. Because it's true. There's a lot of people, uh, lots of people that don't speak in tongues that have more evidence of, evidence of the Spirit's life. It's become an elitist type of thing. It can become uh, for a lot of neo-Pentecostals. And then the danger for charismatics, I would say, is that it just becomes a signs and wonders hunt. And you know what I'm talking about, some of you, where the Holy Spirit is equated to what, what can happen and it turns into a freak show or sideshow in the church where everybody's always got a word. There's always something happening. It, there's no order. It's all over the place. This is free therapy for some of you today. You're welcome. I'm just here for you. Um, and I sense a, a type of danger where it becomes a, a, a dog and pony show where it's just like, what can we get from heaven? And like, um, I've just seen the abuses in that sense. You know, this whole idea of the glory realm and experiencing the glory realm. I think we also need to be careful of that. So there are dangers on all all sides of this. But I think it's important just to actually talk through and wrestle through um, what, how we see these things and how we see God working in the scriptures through his people. At any rate with all this, I'm sure I've caused more questions at times than answers. And I would love to chat through this. And we, we will talk about tongues and prophecy and, and that. But I think there, there's trust built in our community to know that we are open to this stuff. But we also want to walk in order. So funny to me that Paul talks about tongues and prophecy in 1 Corinthians, and then he has like a whole chapter on order and worship. And uh, that's, not, that's not a coincidence. I think that's there for a reason. All I'll say is this, is that we desire to be a community filled with the Holy Spirit. And I actually think, you know, uh, we'll close with this. 
I think there are a lot of people that are so passionate about the Bible that they shut any talk of it, as I've said, any talk about the Holy Spirit off. And then it's, for me, it just, looking, it swings completely the other way. You have churches where it's all about the Holy Spirit and it's almost like the spiritual thing to do in gatherings is we didn't even get to the teaching and preaching. We didn't even open our Bibles because the Spirit was moving so much that they just, they kind of shut off any sort of theology or right thinking. It's all about the Holy Spirit. And I actually think what we want to do is we, as a community, want to walk in both of those things. Deeply theological, thinking, using our minds um, uh, to, to wrestle through the scriptures, obviously as a community, looking at issues and wrestling through what the scripture says, but also being open to the Holy Spirit. We want to be radically open to the Holy Spirit. And that's not because of a denomination. We rarely talk about our denomination here. We're a part of a network of great churches. But the community that God has called us to be is to, to work in both of those things. We desire to be a community where the gifts of the Spirit uh, continue in the here and now, appropriately, just God working in and among us. And we desire to be a community proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of Jesus and living in the Spirit. We desire to be a community that rejects dualism, this Platonic idea that our body and our soul are separated, but rather puts emphasis on the healing and the restoration of this world and the Holy, us coming alongside God and his work by the Spirit to see redemption and healing and restoration in our moment. And ultimately, we desire to be a community with an eschatological, which is a big word, which just means the end, an orientation of how God is working towards mission and justice. This is what we want to be. And this is what the Spirit does within us. And we've been talking a lot. This is what I want to call you into. Um, I'm not, and we are not as caught up on, okay, when does this happen? We'll let people quib about that and, and you know, all that. What we want to do is we just want to lay it before us and just open up the scriptures and say, okay, God is calling us to live by his spirit and this is how we want to live. And so with that said, as we close our time together, I'm just so thankful for all of you and just grace and peace. We love you guys so much. We're going to take time and this is what I love about a community that comes to the table every single week. Doesn't matter what we're talking about. Song of Songs to, uh, yeah, talking about more teachy stuff like this. When we come to the table, it's just a reminder for us of what God has done. And we're gonna take a minute. Cam's gonna throw up a song that just talks about coming to the table of God. And can we just reflect, take a couple minutes as this song plays over us as we close to just reflect. And if you want where you are, just to take bread and wine or whatever you have, or for maybe for some of you, you're just preparing to eat a Sunday meal and you just wanna eat that in the name of Jesus. The first century the church was around a table. The Lord's Supper was around a table. We're totally open to that. But let's take a minute and just open our, our lives as we take communion together to open our lives up to the Holy Spirit and posture ourselves and just thank God for what he's done. Let's take a minute. Love you guys.